As the National Security Advisor of the United States says indirect talks with Iran over its nuclear program aren't going very well, the Washington blame game is well underway. The Biden administration blames Donald Trump's decision to leave the Iran nuclear deal. Iran deal opponents say it's Biden's fault for abandoning Trump's campaign of maximum pressure, in quotes. As we look toward an uncertain new year on the Iran file, we're joined by a very special guest, retired General Moshe Bogi Yalon, former Chief of General Staff of the Israel Defense Force and former Minister of Defense of the State of Israel. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, we've talked a lot about Iran this year. I know you love it. It's your favorite subject. I know you're obsessed with it, um, but I, I, you know, perhaps that's me. That's fine. That's why I like talking about JCPOA. It's big in the news. It seems we aren't heading for the happy conclusion the Biden administration wanted for 2021. The National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, painting a rather grim picture of U.S. indirect talks with Iran in Vienna. And of course, in classic Washington fashion, now comes the blame game. Well, I would say, you know, take issue with your your last statement. It's not the happy conclusion that the Biden administration wanted. I think it's the conclusion we all wanted for 2021, which is a deal that is longer, stronger, and better than keeps Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. I don't think that that's a partisan issue. Uh, I agree with you when you say the talks aren't going well, or at least by many accounts. And I think that the Biden administration is going to have to show what they mean when uh, all options are on the table and, and that they're prepared to do whatever it takes to keep Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Well, the happy conclusion would have been to go back to the Iran nuclear deal, uh, as they had said their policy was. Uh, I opposed that idea of going back to the Iran nuclear deal, so I, I, I didn't support that. I didn't think it would get you to the longer, stronger deal. I've written on that throughout the year. I don't want to say told you so. We're, I agree with you. We, we want the administration to succeed in the right policy. I don't like the fact that we are at this position with Iran today. We didn't need to be here, but we are where we are. I will say the conventional wisdom has been that the Israeli government opposed the JCPOA back in 2015 and supported Trump leaving the deal in 2018. And at a political level, that was certainly true. And so when a very prominent former Israeli official comes out and declares it was a mistake to leave the deal, given what's happening today, that does generate a lot of headlines. And that's true of our guest today, who said exactly that uh, to Jewish Insider just a few short weeks ago. Moshe Bogi Yalon served for 37 years in the Israel Defense Forces, rising to the position of chief of the general staff. Following his military retirement, he joined the Likud party, winning election to parliament in 2009 and again in 2012. He served in successive Israeli governments as Minister of Strategic Affairs and Minister of Defense. And General Moshe Bogi Yalon joins us today. General Yalon, Bogi, uh, as they call you, uh, thank you so much for, for joining the podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You told Jewish Insider uh, a few weeks ago, um, I'll quote you, the JCPOA was a historic mistake, but the withdrawal from it was even worse. At least in 2015, we had an international coalition. The P5 plus one voted together in the UN Security Council. But by withdrawing and going alone, the US lost Europe, Russia, and China. It was a tremendous mistake. Uh, you've made those comments elsewhere as well, different conferences and press reports. I want to ask you a lot of questions about that assessment. Uh, I think Jared does too. But before we get to the idea of leaving the Iran deal, uh, whether it was a mistake, 
I do want to clarify your views on where we're going from here, because I think people have taken your comments to assume you do want to go back to the JCPOA or, or cut this, what they're saying, more for less in Vienna. That's what's under discussion right now. Do you support either going back to the Iran deal today or cutting this more for less deal, or, or, or do you support a, a different approach at this point? I start by saying that for Israel, the Iranian regime is an existential threat. And uh, I follow the developments in Iran since I served as the uh, head of the intelligence in the 90s, when we found at the very beginning that the Iranians are going to have a military nuclear capability. It was at the time of uh, late Mr. Rabin, uh, as a prime minister, I, uh, I was head of the intelligence. And since then, we discussed this issue as a security challenge, as a strategic challenge, not just for Israel, for the Middle East and beyond, for America, for Europe, for any power, party, which does care about stability in the Middle East and all over the globe. Now, when we reach the uh, uh, discussions with Obama administration uh, at the time, we participated in creating a pressure on this regime because I, we believed, I believe even today, that the only way to convince this rogue regime in Tehran, which is calling to wipe Israel off the map of the earth and to gain hegemony in the Middle East and beyond, as they call it, exporting the revolution, the Shiite revolution. I believe that the only way to deal with this regime is to put the regime in the dilemma, whether to go on with the rogue activities. On top of it is a military nuclear project. But what about proliferation of arms and terror in the Middle East, abducting Lebanon as a, as, as a state, uh, influencing Syria by deploying uh, threatening Shia militias against Israel on Syrian soil? What about gaining uh, influence in Iraq, not allowing the legitimate government uh, to, to govern the country, Yemen vis-a-vis -vis the Houthis, uh, the Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad in the Palestinian arena uh, challenging North African countries, on top of them uh, Morocco, by uh, uh, financing, supporting uh, certain uh, terror organizations to challenge the regime and so forth. I believe that the only way to bring this regime to is to put to, to put, to bring them to the dilemma whether to go on with their own activities or to survive as a regime. And that was the idea in the time of uh, President Obama when we participated in creating the pressure. First of all, political isolation of the regime, which doesn't exist today. Then creeping economic sanctions. We were asked by President Obama to bring on board Russia and China. Prime Minister Netanyahu paid a visit to Moscow to convince Putin to, to vote for the UN Security Resolution on June 2010 for sanction 
against sanctions against the regime. I paid a visit to Beijing to convince the Chinese at that time, and we did it. And after the UN Security Council resolution, having a coalition led by the United States, not just on the United Nations, all over, uh, it had become successful. In 2012, the feeling in Tehran was that they have to make a decision whether to go on with their activities or to survive as a regime. The choice was clear for me, survivability. Another element in the strategy was demonstrating a credible military option. So three uh, pillars strategy, political isolation, crippling economic sanctions, and credible military option. That brought Khamenei to the table on his knees, 2012, first of all, to be engaged with the great Satan America against all odds, against the ideology. He had to apologize for it by calling it a flexible heroism. But he did it. Then we came to the JCPOA. Three years of engagement at the beginning, a bilateral engagement between the regime and the, the administration. At the end, the JCPOA with the PAF P5 plus one. But it was a missed opportunity, historic missed opportunity. Instead of uh, using this successful strategy to bring the regime to what we saw to believe should have been to give up the whole idea of centrifuges, not to allow them 300 kilograms of enriched uranium, to put on table the missiles project, which is a violation of certain international resolutions. Of course, the whole idea of proliferation of arms and terror, and even the military dimensions of the nuclear project were excluded from the, from the uh, JCPOA. So we call it, and I call it, we call it, and I call it today. Nevertheless, it, it was reached, it was done deal. And when uh, President Trump started to think about withdrawal from the resolution, the resolution, I published an article calling him not to do it. First of all, because it will give the Iranian regime an excuse to withdraw, to, to violate. And that's what they did. All experts claiming, and I agree with them, that because of the withdrawal from the, from the JCPOA, now the Iranians are closest to the ability, first of all, to have uh, enriched uranium in a capacity to produce a bomb. We don't know about whether they make any progress on the military dimension of the project. We believe that they still are very cautious, very careful, not to do it because they are afraid from the response. But nevertheless, because of the withdrawal, the United States, the USA administration destroyed the coalition, the P5 plus one. They are not on board. It's Russia, China, the Europeans. And we, it was, that's why I rejected the idea to withdraw. I thought about if you decide to withdraw, you should have a plan B. If you are going to attack them, that uh, might be, that is a good idea. But if you don't have a plan B and you don't, do not demonstrate strength, even not responding to the interception of U.S. intelligence 
unmanned air vehicle. You demonstrate weakness. And that's why I criticize the, the withdrawal. And what I claim now, we're talking about the current situation, I call to rehabilitate the coalition. I call Biden administration. Let's try to build again such a coalition by bringing on board all the elements to include Russia and China with all the challenges. I, I don't ignore it. China signed an agreement, strategic agreement with Iran for 25 years, economic agreement, but it is not a lost case. To be clear, General, you're saying bring them on board to return to a pressure campaign, not bring them on board for some deal where you cut, you know, some, they get to keep 60% of this amount and we're going to give them more sanctions relief, this more for less, and so they're going to call it an interim deal or something like that. Let's forget about the JCPOA. There is no chance to go back. But now to create a pressure, again, again, based on political isolation of the regime, as well as clipping economic sanctions, and the United States is still very powerful to, to, to impose sanctions. It might affect Chinese interests. Why did the Chinese decided to vote for the sanctions in the UN Security Resolution of uh, uh, June 2010. When I visited Beijing, of course, I put on the table all the information about the project. And I said, you know, if it is seen like a duck, it flies like a duck, it swims like a duck, it is a duck, it is a military nuclear project. You can't uh, argue about it. Then uh, Professor Stanley Fisher, who came with me, explained them the implications of not joining the sanctions and being sanctioned by the United States. And they were convinced. So the United States is still an economic power and you can, you can make it. Then regarding the uh, credible military option based on U.S. demonstration of strength, Israeli demonstration of strength, I be believe it is still relevant to bring Khamenei again to this dilemma. And in two cases in history, his choice was survivability. It was in, in, in 2003, in the time of uh, the Bush administration, at that time after going to the US offensive against terror, phase one was in Afghanistan, phase two in Iraq. The main question among leaders in the region was who might be targeted next. Muammar Gaddafi of uh, Libya decided to give up his project without a single shot. And in 2012, this is a case that I mentioned, in the time of Obama administration, Khamenei came to the table because he cho chose at that time survivability. We should try to make it again. Okay, so, I, so let me recap for the listeners. Uh, you were against JCPOA, historic mistake. You were against leaving JCPOA, historic mistake. But now, today, as we enter 2022, and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the Iran talks in Vienna not going well, quote-unquote, to who, who could expect that? 
Uh, we should not go back to JCPOA. We should try to reconstitute the international pressure campaign so that we once again get an opportunity to do what we should have done back in 2015, which is a better deal. General, so I find it really interesting when you talked about visiting the Chinese and making the case to them. We were always told as, as, as people who were for the deal at the time that the deal, the JCPOA was the best deal that the Chinese and the Russians would, would sign on to and that the reason it wasn't perhaps better in 2015 is that that was as good as it was going to get with the P5 plus one. Now, that's what we were told. Uh, interested as, as somebody who was in those meetings with the Chinese, do you take issue with that or think that that is in not a fair representation of what was actually going on on the part of the Chinese in particular? The problem in the uh, engagement between the P5 plus one and the Iranian regime approaching 2015, to my mind, was a American political clock. Not the Russians, not the Chinese. Hmm. The Obama administration at that time, after almost three years of uh, political engagement, the Obama administration, demonstrated by Secretary of State Kerry, whatever, the other members of the, of the team, seem to be in a hurry because of the elections. Now, Khamenei, you know, is a leader forever until his death. He wasn't in a hurry. When the Iranian regime thinks about strategy, they think in terms of decades, even centuries. Mm -hmm. The US administration thought at that time, as it is the case, almost always, about the term, the presidential term. And uh, what the, the administration seemed to be under pressure, political pressure, to reach any kind of agreement before the elections. And that was the main source of pressure. It was not refusal of the Russians or refusal of the Chinese to bring about a better deal. It was, uh, to my mind, the American political clock. That's why I claim we should be in Ari now. We have all, we have now three years before the presidential elections. Don't allow the Iranians to earn time. They are playing with the time. We should be in a hurry now. And we, we should put this pressure upon the regime. We should uh, prepare a military option to waive with it as a credible one to convince the regime. So far, this is not the case. So that's what I claim now. Pressure, pressure, pressure as soon as possible. I do want to go back in time a little bit. Um, as you know, I, I served in the in the Trump uh, National Security Council uh, on the maximum pressure file. In general, I still like him anyway, even though he served in the Trump administration. Rich Goldberg is still my friend. I wasn't there in 2018 when the decision was made, though I did support it uh, on the outside, and I stand by that. But I, well, I want our listeners to hear me say that in the you know the spirit of national <laughs> healing and reconciliation. Go ahead, Rich. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, I do want to take back because I remember very vividly, and, and I look back in, in some of the press reports, February of 2018. So the United States is still in the Iran deal at this time. There's lobbying going on to get get Trump to leave, and we don't know what the president's going to do. The Europeans are freaking out. Um, but uh, a couple of United States senators go to Israel on Codell, Lindsey Graham uh, and Chris Coons, uh, Republican and Democrat, 
and they go to the northern border of Israel. And I remember the headline of Defense News, Graham returns from Israel, we must stop the Assad-Iran machine. Senator Graham says, anytime you leave a meeting where the request is ammunition, 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 that's probably not good. And then Senator Coons is quoted saying, the tempo in terms of the potential for conflict in Syria has gone up, the technologies Iran is projecting into Syria and southern Lebanon has gone up. Iran's willingness to be provocative, to push the edges of the envelope, to challenge Israel has gone up, end quote. And so I remember there really being this feeling in meetings in Israel that we're on the brink of war on the northern border because the Iranians were flush with cash and because Hezbollah was flush with cash and everybody's moving freely in the region in Syria and Lebanon as a result of the JCPOA. And so my question is, does that issue not factor in to the thinking of to get out of the deal to sort of unshackle the sanctions, to be able to put more pressure did, did that decision in any way influence whether or not we had a northern border war between Israel and Hezbollah, Israel and Iran, which did not happen after Trump left the deal? In 2019, I wasn't in any official capacity. I heard that the uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu actually convinced President Trump to withdraw from the JCPOA. If this is the case, he's responsible for it. Now, I'm not uh, talking about the situation in retrospect. Because of that, and I heard about discussions uh, to withdraw from the JCPOA, because of that, I published an article at that time. I was a research fellow in the INSS in Tel Aviv. Uh, now, the uh, Iranian economy was and still is in shambles, still. The economic situation is a critical element when the leader, Khamenei, has to consider a strategy. I can tell you that in 2012, his economists approached him saying, if you go on with this strategy, which caused the sanctions at that time, uh, uh, the political isolation, as well as being threatened by a military option, his economist claimed, we are not able to survive another year or year and a half. And that's why he came to the table. In 2018, with the Trump administration, of course, we worried very much about what was going in Lebanon or in, in Syria. But Israel knows how to deal with it. Here and there, you can hear about... Uh, uh, Iranian targets uh, or Shia targets in Syria, which are targeted by certain air force. We know how to deal with it. But this is, you know, it's dealing with the arms, not with the head. And the head is in Tehran. Even where we have, we have to deal with Hezbollah in Lebanon. Hezbollah, uh, Lebanon has been abducted. The decision to wage a war against us from Lebanon is not going to be made in Beirut. It's going to be made in Tehran. So in strategic thinking, we have to direct the efforts to Tehran. And the only way which was successful twice. In, uh, in, in 2003, uh, Khamenei, the same leader, decided to suspend the project. He stopped all the activities in 2003. Why? In order to avoid the third phase of uh, uh, the American offensive. As uh, Muammar Gaddafi decided to give his military nuclear project. So when we 
stand on the Lebanese border or the Syrian border, we should think about Tehran. How to bring this regime again to such a dilemma? To survive or to go on all these wrong activities? The other entire issues are even tactical and not strategic. General, um, you mentioned a moment ago that the JCPOA and, and it getting done when it got done had a lot to do with the, the American political process and, and, and President Obama um, trying to show progress, at least ahead of um, running for re-election. I wonder if you could talk for a minute about what role, if any, Israeli domestic politics has had on this conversation. You mentioned a moment ago also that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu convinced President Trump to leave the JCPOA. Um, what role did, did Israeli politics have then? And what role, if any, does it have now on uh, Israel's approach to Iran and, and other threats? You know, uh, Henry Kissinger said that uh, Israel doesn't have uh, a uh, foreign affairs uh, strategy. We have internal political uh, discussions. I'm not sure that it's it, 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 it's phrasing his, his saying. And unfortunately, that was the case. I was very critical to what Netanyahu decided to do at that time and to, to actually uh, to initiate a conflict between the government of Israel and uh, the administration by certain steps. I didn't like the idea that the Israeli government didn't follow, which should have been our strategic interest, keeping bipartisan relationship and not supporting any side, whether it is in the presidential elections or by going to the Congress or, or, or whatever. I, in real time, I saw that it was a tremendous mistake. And unfortunately, because of that, in a certain point, we were not involved in the uh, negotiations between the five P flies plus one and the uh, Iranian regime, we were excluded from being uh, updated. And uh, because of that, uh, President Obama decided even to not to allow certain cooperations. And I'm familiar, of course, with what we have United States and Israel regarding our defense establishments. And it is a strategic asset for both, with all, uh, you know, with all modesty. I don't, I consider Israel as a speedboat and of course the United States as a, as a aircraft carrier. But nevertheless, we enjoyed talking about many administrations. Very good cooperation between our defense establishment. And because of these Israeli political activities, which were because of Israeli internal political considerations, we have lost one of our strategic assets, the cooperation, the very deep, the very intimate cooperation between the United States and Israel. And that's why I consider that in real time as a mistake. That's why even now I claim we should 
cooperate with the US administration. We can argue. We can have many disputes. We have the right in certain rooms to discuss it in closed doors. And I understand, you know, from the Potomac, from Washington, it might be that the Iranian threat is seen very different. The way that it is perceived here, this is existential threat. That's why we are so anxious to do the right things. I believe that it's, we, have, uh, we are on the same page, although we are in different places, but we are on the same play, page. Because just thinking about a military nuclear Iran, what about the Middle East in this case? What about Saudi Arabia? What about Turkey? What about Egypt? So if you, the interest, and I believe that the American interest as well as the European interest is stability in the Middle East, it doesn't go with the military nuclear Iran. That's why we should do our utmost and cooperate in order to prevent it. General, I want to go back again uh, to the decision to leave the JCPOA. Uh, I, as somebody who supported that decision, I want to give a couple of thoughts in my mind and, and have you respond to it, how, how you would have thought about it. One, of course, is that May or really late April, we had uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu revealed to the world in a press conference, famous press conference, that the Mossad had stolen the nuclear weapons archive uh, out of Tehran and started revealing some of that information, turned some of it over to the IAEA, etc. That led to what we're still seeing today with Rafael Grossi at the IAEA, an ongoing investigation into undeclared nuclear activities and sites and materials. Uh, unfortunately, that pressure has pulled back over the last year under this administration, but the Trump administration really pushed forward on that investigation, and it was a real focal point at the IAEA Board uh, of Governors that could have potentially led to a referral back to the Security Council for noncompliance with the NPT. If, if Trump had not left the deal, and I saw this in Vienna with the Europeans, because the fear is, is that pushing this investigation could collapse the JCPOA. If Trump had not left the deal and the political pressure from Europe and everyone was still stay in the deal, keep the deal going, don't you worry that there would never have been an investigation at the IAEA and what happened in 2015 was sweeping PMD under the rug, that this is the, the prior military dimensions or possible military dimensions of the program, would have just happened again with the nuclear archive. And instead, now we still have this active investigation at the IAEA. Isn't that a benefit of leaving the deal? The IAEA is under pressure, under Iranian pressure, as well as uh, pressure led by the United States. That's the way that I know it and, and understand it. Now, there were certain cases in which we asked very tough questions the IAEA inspectors. If the Iranians made a, a, a test in Parchin, why don't you insist to go into the facility and to check it? If not, more sanctions. But you have to challenge the regime. And as I learned, in certain cases, the IAEA operated according to the Iranian pressure. And if this is a game, in to what pressure the uh, uh, IAEA is ready to obey, uh, without going to details, according to my experience, when the 
West led by the United States, was determined and pushed and pressured the uh, IAEA inspectors, they were ready to challenge the, the regime. Now, it is not just the IAEA, and we are talking about pressure. It should have been a pressure created by a coalition led by the United States, the Europeans on board. In certain cases, you know, when we talked about the nuclear project, the French and the Brits were tougher than the Americans. That is true. Especially the French. Especially the French. In, in other cases, the Germans played their own game because of economic business considerations. And, and the administration, of course, in this case, the American administration had and has the power. The political power, the economic power, as well as military power, if it is needed, to put the pressure not just on Tehran, on, on, on Western capitals, as an example, regarding uh, economic interests. One last question on, on JCPOA for me, and then uh, I'll turn it back over to my co-host. If Trump doesn't leave the Iran deal, if the United States today is still in the Iran deal, December 20th, 2021, there are a couple of things that would have happened already, right? The arms embargo would have expired last October, and had the United States threatened sanctions, as President Trump eventually did, he issued an executive order with sanctions threatening Russia and China, if you, if you try to transfer arms, we'll impose sanctions. And we haven't seen that happen yet because of those sanctions are still in place today. And that's been one point of ambiguity on the Biden administration so far, whether they would enforce those sanctions. But the Iranians could have said, if you impose those sanctions, if you threaten interfering with the arms bar lifting, we're going to enrich uranium. Right? You're, you're breaking your side of the deal if you don't let the arms embargo expire. So we're going to do what we're doing today anyways uh, in response to not allowing the arms embargo to expire. And then sort of the follow-on of that is, of course, everything Iran's doing today is allowed under the JCPOA just after a few more years. Right, That's the craziness of, of, of this whole thing. If they hold on to the sunsets, everything they do today, which is illicit, is actually perfectly allowable in just a few short years. And so I guess the fundamental question is, because of the historic mistake of the JCPOA of leaving them with the enrichment capabilities, leaving them with the sunsets, wouldn't all of this crisis happen sooner or later anyways? And then the question is, when do you want the crisis to happen? It might be, which it might be that you are very right, because the JCPOA allowed Iran within a decade or so to go on with a project. I was very supportive to the Trump idea to impose more sanctions, but to keep the coalition, not to withdraw from the JCPOA. JCPOA was given. Now, from that point, let's go on in imposing pressure. Let's uh, wave with a credible military option. Let's respond, you know. We don't allow the Iranians to challenge us. By any military means, whether it is in the Palestinian arena, from Lebanon, from, from Syria. In the time of Obama, an American frigate, USS Mason, was targeted three times by Iranian-made land-to-sea missiles. Of course, the missiles missed the frigate not because of the Iranian intention, because of the defensive measure take, measures taken by the USS Mason. 
but there was not any American response. And unfortunately, that was the case with Trump. After the interception of the intelligence UAV, I saw to believe this is an opportunity to demonstrate strength. In the Middle East, if you don't hold the big stick and use it properly when it is needed, and there was an opportunity to use a big stick to demonstrate strength, to respond to this provocation. What was the uh, 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 Iranian conclusion after uh, ignoring the interception, not doing anything by the American side? Wow, Trump is ready to impose sanctions, to talk, but he's not ready to do anything on the military uh, arena. It was a, a mistake. Slimani, the assassination of Slimani was something different, but it was too late uh, and not, it, 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 didn't, it didn't enable to bring again the coalition that I believe is still relevant. That's my proposal to the Biden administration. Let's go back to this kind of pressure, political, economic, and military, to bring the regime to the right choice. To pivot a, a second, because we, we've been talking Iran for a while now, and it is obviously the major existential threat to Israel at the moment. Um, the UAE's national security advisor recently visited Iran and met with Iran's president. And one Israeli official was quoted as saying, they're running through the drops without getting wet. They're doing, with, they're doing so with expertise and skill. And the strangest thing is no one's mad at them. Uh, we know their, we know about their relations with the Iranians. We know who, we know about their relations with us and everyone's accept, accepts it. My question is, how do you see the Abraham Accords affecting, affecting Israel's dynamic with Iran and with, and in the region generally? The Abraham Accord is, is, is a very significant strategic achievement. First of all, and it was the case even before it's, exposing the, the, the Abraham Accords. I was involved in the relationship, creating the relationship, building the relationship between Israel and the Gulf states, uh, as it was under the table before exposing it. Uh, there is no Israeli Arab conflict. Wow, it is an achievement. There is an Israeli-Palestinian one. And the Arab regimes realized that Israel and uh, themselves, we are on the same boat. First of all, we share common uh, enemies. Iran is on top of it. The jihadists. Turkey claiming to have an Ottoman Empire. It's not an enemy, but it's a rival. For our interest, for the Gulf states, or the Arab interest as well. And of course, uh, interest based on economic cooperation, they understand that the oil is not anymore uh, economic or political asset as it was in the 70s. The United States is independent regarding energy. Uh, so they need high tech. They need uh, water. They need uh, sophisticated agriculture. We have the know-how. That's why we enjoy relationship based on interest. I am a great believer on relationship based on interest, not on Accords written by lawyers. Forgive me. <laughs> Interest. Forgive it. Forgiven. Forgiven. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, uh, they have their own uh, uh, considerations. And 
I believe that the, uh, I understand that the Gulf state regimes, uh, especially after the U.S. withdrawal from the Afghanistan, after uh, creating pressure on their regimes regarding human rights, they are not so sure about the U.S. US administration. This is the case. This is a great change, not to compare to the time of the Trump administration. In this case, they have to open channels, not just with Israel, as they do, and we enjoy it, and we encourage it, we welcome it. They open channels even with Iran to be on the safe side where, because of what they are afraid of certain developments in the Middle East from America. Bogey, it's a very rare opportunity, I think, for our listeners to speak to a former IDF chief of staff, let alone a former defense minister of the state of Israel. You uh, are one of the few people who have been in that seat uh, to have that bird's eye view of all the security threats uh, as Israel sees it from from the Kiria and Tel Aviv. What is it like the day in the life of an IDF chief of staff or a defense minister? I mean, what do you do on a daily basis? What is what is that like for you? Are you just never sleeping? Is it like Churchill during the war and you're taking 30-minute naps? I mean, what what's the what is it like? You know, I I was asked several times, how do you sleep as a chief general staff as 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 a defense minister? And I said I sleep like a baby waking up every 2 hours and and crying. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, as I know our strengths, I know all our secrets. And I'm confident about our ability, the ability of the state of Israel to defend ourselves by ourselves. We are lucky to have young generation. This morning, I spoke with an Israeli youngster before the being drafting to the military about the motivation, about taking responsibility. And this is our well-known secret. I claim this is the spirit, the Jewish Zionist spirit, which bring many youngsters in Israel to be ready to take responsibility, even to sacrifice their lives for the country. It's a source of strength. And this is the spirit and the knowledge. This is uh, our secret. State of the art when it comes to excellence, technology, high tech, whatever, of the youngsters. But it is based on the Jewish Zionist spirit. That's why I'm so confident in our ability to, first of all, to stand against all odds. You know, tiny country in this Middle East, hostile environment until recently, uh, Israeli Arab conflict. This is not the case anymore because of our strength. Not because all other parties in the region have become Zionists. Because of our strength and our ability to cooperate. You know, the Middle East is short of water. We went to desalination. We are not short of water anymore. We don't have to fight for water. Uh, recycling water for, for agriculture. We provide uh, uh, water to Jordan. To the Palestinians, of course, they know how to certain countries in the region are ready to desalinate or to recycle water for agriculture. We have the know-how. So, first of all, it's a great responsibility 
to be chief of general staff and or defense minister. I, I still remember the day after uh, accomplishing my term. You feel like you are flying in the air, <laughs> removing tons of responsibility from your shoulders. Is, is there one that's better than the other? One job? Was IDF chief of staff better than defense minister? Uh, the only advantage of the chief of general staff is not to be politician. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know, so, in the military, you have the ethics, the values. The enemy is in front of you. <laughs> not behind you. You are surrounded. surrounded. <laughs> but you know... <laughs> you have to deal you have to deal with certain issues which I prefer not to deal with internal political uh, whatever all kind of uh, combinations and manipulations and uh, spin doctors in, in being a chief general staff it is clearer than being politician to sum up, we, we typically do something we call the lightning round, uh, where we ask our guests to kind of give us, uh, answer a few short questions, which give us a, a little bit of a better sense of who they are when they're not working. Um, so my first one is your favorite Hebrew or Yiddish phrase. And it's okay if it is a profane, uh, if it's profanity, it just can't be English profanity. In, in Hebrew, im en anili mili. If I'm not to myself, who will be for me? In Yiddish, forgessen. <laughs> <laughs> That's a classic. That's a classic. Do you have a favorite Arabic phrase? You know what is IBM in the Middle East? It is the abbreviation of Inshallah, Bukra, Maalesh. Inshallah is the God will take care. Bukra is, let's do it tomorrow, like manana. Malesh, never mind. That's IBM in the Middle East. Inshallah. <laughs> IBM, I like that. Malesh. Do you have a favorite military operation from IDF military history? You know, when it comes to special forces operation, of course, uh, I was responsible for uh, the assassination of Abu Jihad in, in Tunis, which was done smoothly because of very good preparations. When it comes to war, the most uh, the unforgettable war for me is Yom Kippur War, uh, in which I participated as a reservist, as a paratrooper with the first brigade to cross the Suez Canal. And for me, you know, from being in the bottom, after unfortunately being surprised by the Arabs, a coalition of Egypt and, and, and Syria, which was of course uh, an Israeli failure, uh, political as well as uh, senior military echelon failures, uh, I realized that the troops on the ground, I was there, turned the whole situation. First of all, by the spirit. We knew at that time that there was no choice. So the Yom Kippur achievement in terms of uh, Israeli wars, to me, and even in retrospect, was more significant than the Six-Day War in 67 because of the mistakes that we did at the beginning 
and turning the whole situation to our favor to in, in to threaten Cairo to threaten Damascus from the rock bottom to climb on the hill it was a main challenge that I can I still consider and not just myself many experts consider it as a great achievement General Bogi Yalon Moshe Yalon thank you so much for joining the podcast it's an honor to have had you today thank you Rich thank you Gerald for having me appreciate having you on General thank you so much thank you Jared, that was uh, just an excellent uh, interview. Um, what an honor and a treat for us to have uh, really a legend uh, from uh, Israeli uh, modern military uh, history and the defense establishment in Israel, a really leading thinker. Uh, I will say you, you hear a lot in the news uh, of the back and forth, the blame game going on. We talked about it at the top of the uh, episode. And when you listen to somebody like General Yalon, this is somebody with immense credibility on defense and security issues in Israel. Is there politics going on in Israel? We know there is. But, you know, he, he was very forthright. He has a cogent argument. He documented his position at the time. I, I think it's it's a very big deal to listen to somebody like General Yalon say it was a mistake to leave the Iran deal. I disagree with him. I pointed out some things, as you heard in the conversation, even got to a point where we, we, I'll call it a draw. But at the same time, you can't just tout General Yalon saying it was a mistake to leave the Iran deal as proof that we should go back. He was also very clear, that same credibility, that same strategic mind is saying, do not go back. Do not cut a bad deal in Vienna. Go back to pressure. And really, in my view, he's describing what the maximum pressure was supposed to be, this three-legged stool of political economic and military pressure against the regime. That's what the idea of maximum pressure was. He's he's calling for Biden to reconstitute a pressure campaign, work with various countries to do that, and not cut a deal or not go back to the old deal. And that's equally important for people to take away. Yeah, I think, you know, anytime you can have somebody who is a not just a um, commentator on the events of the last 30 years in the Middle East, but a participant in shaping them. I mean, when he talks about going across the Suez Canal as, as a young paratrooper, uh, you know, I got I got chills um, hearing about that history through his mind and his words, all the way up through his journey to being chief of general staff and, and the defense minister, and now somebody who is commenting uh, and really a force uh, on these events. I don't know that I, I, I took from it what you took, but you know, reasonable minds can differ. It was a pleasure having him on, and, and I think uh, our, our listeners hopefully uh, enjoyed it as well. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.